Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report, and I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Russian President Vladimir Putin's decision to recognize two regions of Ukraine as independent states and send in Russian troops have shocked the world, with many fearing it could foreshadow greater aggression by the Kremlin. Meanwhile, many in the U.S. are stuck worrying about the safety of family and friends. KQED's Cesar Saldana spoke with Bay Area residents with ties to Ukraine. Nick Bielogorsky's family lives 50 miles from the Russian border. It worries me a lot. They're worried as well. But he says they're hesitant to make any drastic moves just yet. They don't want to leave behind their livelihood, their friends, their work, their houses, their pets. It's really difficult to be internally displaced. They don't want to take that step until it's absolutely necessary. Bielogorsky is chairman of Nova Ukraine, a humanitarian nonprofit that provides relief and aid to vulnerable communities in the country. This past weekend, he helped organize a rally in San Francisco where hundreds of Ukrainian activists and allies gathered to protest Russian aggression against Ukraine. Bay Area writer and journalist Zarina Zabrinsky has been covering the conflict for over a decade. I'm heartbroken. I cry often. I feel like flying there. As invasion looms over eastern Ukraine, she's been speaking with her friends in the region. They are stocking up on anything from water to little gas canisters, uh, hygiene and medical supplies. And a lot of people and women, middle-aged women, like women in their 50s, are taking active military training courses to go to the army and defend Ukraine with their firearms. And now that Russia has sent in troops, Ukrainian activists in the Bay Area are focused on fundraising to get aid to families displaced by the conflict. For The California Report, I'm Cesar Saldana. California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger is said to be on President Biden's shortlist to fill the seat of retiring U.S. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. KQED Politics Editor Scott Schaefer tells us more about Kruger's career path. When a vacancy on the California Supreme Court opened up in 2014, Governor Jerry Brown spent months searching for a replacement. I was looking for outstanding candidates, men, women, just who is extremely intelligent and an accomplished lawyer. Then, after months of looking... She popped up. As soon as I met her, I was very impressed. Leandra Kruger, then 38 years old, was living on the East Coast, working for the Solicitor General's office in the Obama Justice Department. When Brown nominated her, there was some grumbling that he didn't choose an attorney or judge practicing in California, a criticism Brown brushes off. I don't think you've heard a peep of criticism. Very independent, very well-reasoned, very well-prepared. 
Born and raised in Pasadena, Kruger graduated from Harvard before heading to Yale Law School. Common descriptions of her? Studious, serious, and focused. She's very quiet. She's reserved, more of a shy personality. Melissa Murray was at Yale when Kruger became editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Journal, the first black woman to hold that prestigious position. It was a really exciting moment, a real accomplishment, um, not just for her, but I think we all sort of took great pride in what she was able to accomplish. Murray, who now teaches at New York University Law School, says she and Kruger bonded at Yale over their common family background. Her mother was from Jamaica. Both of my parents are from Jamaica. So I think we initially talked about that. And she'd basically grown up in California, in the Los Angeles area, the daughter of two doctors. In 2014, Murray was teaching at UC Berkeley's Bolt Law School and heard the criticism when Brown picked Kruger, a D.C. lawyer, instead of one working in California. This wasn't a carpetbagging situation. Like, she was impeccably qualified. And this was a governor who I think was incredibly determined to put his stamp on the judiciary, and he did. After graduating Yale, Kruger clerked for Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens, who UC Hastings law professor Rory Little clerked for years earlier. She's kind of unflappably gracious, uh, but also incredibly smart, just incisively smart and perceptive. To me, she's everything you might want in a judge. As a state Supreme Court justice, Kruger has held nuanced, sometimes cautious positions. When the court has been divided, she often joins colleagues appointed by Democratic governors, but not always. But Rory Little says Kruger does not look at cases through a political lens. That is not who Leandra is. She is apolitical. I mean, I, I don't think anybody can find anything in her record where she comments on things politically. Fatima Goss-Graves is executive director of the National Women's Law Center in Washington. She, too, attended Yale with Kruger. She says having President Biden name a black woman to the Supreme Court fills her with pride, whether it's Kruger or someone else on the shortlist. And part of that pride comes from the fact that we have long known many people who would have been well-qualified and would have made the Supreme Court better, but who were never considered. There have already been misplaced criticisms from conservatives who say because Biden has committed to naming a black woman that he's somehow picking someone less qualified, a ridiculous notion given the credentials of the women he's considering. But Rory Little says no matter what they throw at her, Kruger will be ready. She's not going to lose her cool during a Senate confirmation hearing and sort of lash out at the people on the panel. She's not that kind of person, no matter what they say. If Biden chooses her, Kruger will join a short list of Supreme Court nominees who came from state courts, a list that includes Arizona's Sandra Day O'Connor and David Souter of New Hampshire. For The California Report, I'm Scott Schaefer. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of The California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. For the rest of the show, let's turn to crime and policing. In 2021, the murder rate went up in several California cities, including Oakland, which saw homicides reach a 15-year high. At the same time, there are continuing calls to cut the police budget in the city of 425,000 residents, with activists arguing the money could be better spent on other programs that they think could better deal with the roots of crime. Leron Armstrong is Oakland's police chief, a native of the city. He spent his entire career in the department and recently marked his first year as chief. I talked to Chief Armstrong about policing in Oakland, starting with that increase in homicides. Well, I think we were definitely impacted by the pandemic. Uh, We've seen much higher numbers when it comes to homicides than we had seen previous years. Uh, Particularly gun violence has really been driving our homicides, really grouping gang violence. And when you say the pandemic is at least partly responsible for the increase in murder rates in Oakland, what exactly does that mean? How does COVID intersect with crime? Well, it prevents us from using some of the strategies that we know have been effective in driving down gun violence. I think uh, some of the studies that have been done really suggest that having direct communication with those involved in violence is critical to violence reduction. The ability to get in front of groups and gangs and really message to them about making different decisions, giving them opportunities in terms of violence prevention programs, encouraging them to change their lives. All of those things were impacted by the pandemic and our inability to get on the ground and actually communicate with people. Obviously, COVID restrictions meant that our workers couldn't go out into the community. They couldn't actually go into people's homes like they had been doing. So these people that needed direct communication, these people that needed case management on a day-to-day basis, they weren't able to get it. And keeping in mind that California has some of the toughest firearm restrictions in the country, is the availability of guns a huge factor, including these ghost guns, which are assembled by people at home and can't be traced easily? Oh, it is a huge factor. Over the last two years, the city has seen an increase in recovery of firearms, both in 2020, with nearly a 30% increase in recovery of firearms. And then we went on par this year, uh, 2021, with uh, recovery of firearms as well. And you spoke of ghost guns. We, you know, are the technical term is, is privately manufactured firearms. We've seen in Oakland, a significant increase in the recovery of ghost guns in our city. We also know that from information uh, in our community that they have been readily available uh, to individuals seeking to purchase firearms. And obviously that provides tremendous challenges for the police department in the sense of these are untraceable firearms. Uh, These firearms are not serialized. And so when you have weapons in your community that we're unable to trace, when we're unable to connect to other events, That's really problematic for us. 
Chief, let me ask you about crime in one particular place in Oakland, and that's East Oakland. It leads the city in the number of calls made to your department, and about half of last year's homicides occurred there. You're responding now by deploying more of your officers to East Oakland. When are residents there going to start seeing results? Well, I shifted. I made the shift in January 22nd. I believe that we're already beginning to see the fruits of that transition. We are seeing lower call numbers, standing call numbers. And what that means for us is that uh, less community members are waiting on officers to respond to their calls. I hope community members are seeing that quicker response. On an average, we would see 100 some odd calls standing for hours waiting for a response. Those numbers are down to the 40 range now. Let's move to another issue, and that's dollars. As a manifestation of the defund the police movement, it wasn't so long ago that municipal leaders in Oakland wanted to cut your department's budget by $18 million. Some called for far deeper cuts of $50 million or more. None of that has happened. Uh, You've had no cuts to your budget. Do you as chief worry as much about the defunding efforts now than you would have, say, a year ago? No, I mean, you know, my focus, you know, continues, you know, to be making sure that our community is as safe as we can make it. I think it's about really hearing the voices of community members that are calling for more police response, quicker police response, more uh, arrest of those who are involved in some of the most serious crimes like shootings and homicides. And so I think their voices are, are what has changed the conversation. And so really, I really do appreciate the city council reconsidering some things and making uh, some additional investments in academies, because I think it's clear uh, that this city is in need of as many police resources as we can get on the streets to help address this crime spree that we've seen over the last two years. But Chief, what do you say to activists out there who charge that law enforcement leaders like yourself will use the public sphere of crime to protect your funding, protect your institutional clout, and change the subject away from things like police abuse and police reform? So I simply say uh, to, to, to those advocates is that it's not that I, as a chief, am not interested in alternative ways to actually address public safety. But I do think the data supports uh, the fact that there are nearly 2,000 people that call 911 in the city of Oakland every single day. The question is, do you have enough officers to respond to those calls in an adequate time? And so I think it's just meeting the public safety call of our community. And what does that number look like? Uh, We are definitely open to alternative responses to certain calls, but it still doesn't remove the violent crime calls that we have to respond to and that we still have a challenge with maintaining. But Chief, your response seems to be that you always deal with crime and social ills by putting more cops out on the street, often in neighborhoods where some people might feel the police presence is already way too heavy-handed. Reform advocates would say that displays a lack of imagination and that it takes the attention away from other solutions like putting more mental health and violence prevention workers out into neighborhoods, uh, people who aren't cops. From where you sit, what do you think about that? From where I sit, I think we in Oakland have invested in proven strategies that work. Uh, We are using our resources as effective as we can. 
uh, our officers have reduced overall stops nearly 65% over the last three years, impacting less community members. Uh, I think we have uh, also seen our arrest numbers change significantly as to who we arrested, uh, focusing our numbers on those who are involved in the most violent crimes and not arresting people for low level crimes. So I do think that it effectively, you know, we have effectively transitioned into what into sort of a a different way of policing in our community, which is aligned with, I think, what advocates would like to see, that law enforcement does focus on the most violent people, that law enforcement does spend its time uh, actually focus on the crimes that community would like to see them solve. But I do think that there is a need for the an adequate number of officers to respond to the 911 calls from community members who are in need of assistance. Alternative responses, I think they work, but I think when people are calling 911 because they have an emergency, there should be someone on the other side of that phone that can say, we are sending a police officer to make sure you're safe. That's the question. What does that number look like? I think the city of Oakland continues to need a fair number of police officers in order to be available to respond to those calls. All right. That is Oakland Police Chief Laron Armstrong. Chief, thanks so much for joining us on the California Report. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to coming back and telling you that it's a safer city. And that's the California Report for Tuesday, February 22nd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Support for the California Report comes from Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system on the web at chcf.org health equity. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.